Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to a new episode of Audio Signals. Get ready to take a journey into the known, the unknown, and everything in between. Recorded at no specific point in time nor space, ITSP Magazine's co-founders Marco Cipelli and Sean Martin follow their passion and curiosity as they venture away from the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society to discover new stories worth being told. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Marco. Sean. When was last time? <laughs> is that your new signature? <laughs> when was it when last? When was the last time? Well, say the latter. I'm just wondering, well, maybe, maybe have you ever? Oh, God. Uh, so this is about chat uh, GPT? Is that what it is? Hallucination uh, of... Are you uh, AI? I don't know. Well, you know... Um, or, or why does it hallucinate? If, let, let's put it this way. Is it an extension of us? Do we hallucinate? Not, not, not on purpose. That's my answer. Uh, I certainly no. have it on purpose. I would remember you don't, you that. Don't sit down and say, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose it." Right eh, I didn't take stuff that you know <laughs> make you think about doing that. But there are several theories uh, that uh, we discuss. One of those today that talk about how we build our own uh, reality. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I don't know. I can think a lot of uh, philosophers in the past from. Uh, you know, looking at things the way they are, if they're there, therefore they are. If I I think, ergo sum, and <laughs> so many different things. But now I think science is allowing us to actually look more into how maybe our mind and our brain really, really work. So uh, I'm very excited about this conversation is on audio signals, but funny enough, audio book, writing, it's all together now, technology is mixing everything. And with Sean, we're going to talk about this book coming up, coming out soon. It's called The Experience Machine and How Our Minds Predict and Shape Reality by Andy Clark. So people watching the video, they can see him. He's right here, Andy Clark, and people listening, trust us, he's here. So Andy, how are you? (laughs) You're here. We'll experience him audibly today. I am not making this up, but I guess you're here. I'm definitely here, mind you. <clears throat> you know, you have to take all those uh, things with a pinch of salt nowadays, but, you know, I really am here, definitely. Exactly. Well, so we're, we're excited. excited. Let, let's start with uh, with you giving your uh, your version of your re- your own reality. Who, who are you? And uh, and let us know. And, and, yeah. the, and the public, the, our audience, listen and uh, see. So Make I'm, up their I'm mind. And- I'm Andy Clark. Um, I'm a philosopher and cognitive scientist, uh, currently working at the University of Sussex, although I've worked in the States for many years as well. Um, And basically, you know, my interests are are just in how minds work, and I'm willing to grab whatever's out there in in the domain of science and technology to try to shed light on that. And uh, that's what I've been doing for many years, thinking about neural networks, robotics, embodied cognition, the extended mind, and kind of bringing it all together in uh, the book, The Experience Machine. That's the hope. And there, there's a word 
cult in uh, in some of the stuff that I read about this. And I don't know. What I find interesting is that is is it kind of to Marco's point at the beginning? It, do we have control <laughs> over this? Yeah. Do others have control over this so that we can actually sculpt an experience, or do we just? Yeah, good. I don't know. I'll just leave it there for for you. Yeah, <laughs> you I mean, it's a, it you that know, that's an exciting question. The you know the premise of the of the book is that there's a huge body of research coming together around the idea that what brains really are are prediction machines. That just about everything that brains do can be understood by thinking of them as in the business of making predictions, not just about, you know, the world outside, but about your own body, about your own future activities, everything. Um, now, if, if this sort of account is right, then those predictions make a difference to everything that we see, touch, think, and feel. And the question that you're asking is how much control do we have over all of that, given that predictions are playing a role. And I think that the, I think that the answer that we can circle around to here is we've probably got a bit more control than we think, but not as much as we'd like. Because, you know, no matter how much I want to predict certain things, you know, um, my, the predictions that structure most of my experience are the sort of residue of all the experiences I've had before. And there's not much that I can do about those. They just are what they are. So I can push and prod my prediction machinery a bit by, I don't know, saying things to myself like um, that tingly feeling before doing this podcast isn't a sign of impending failure. It's a chemical signal of readiness to deliver a good performance. So, you know, that, that kind of reframing helps. Um, at the same time, of course, uh, a lot of our predictions are, are operating unconsciously. Um, people can be given placebo drugs where those drugs are clearly labeled placebo. And you would think that that would mean that, and they understand what a placebo is, it's inert, it's not going to affect the organic causes of your whatever it is. And you still get the effects because they entrain unconscious expectations if it's well packaged and somebody in a white coat authoritatively says, but take this, it might help, even though it's a placebo. <laughs> it, it seems to work. So I think a huge mountain of unconscious predictions with a little bit of conscious prediction and our wiggle room is mostly around the conscious predictions, but just understanding that predictions matter so much will help us too. So is, yeah. is there some point in, in where we are with our science and technology, of course, that allow you and others that, that, that brings this theory up front to actually say, yeah, we, we can actually see this now? Um, I mean, yeah. is there just still a theory or are we going into experimental scientific yes, method? <laughs> yeah, I think we're well beyond the stage of it just being a kind of idea, at least. It's, you know, it's now a well-worked-out computational story about how predictions and evidence, sensory evidence in particular, are balanced by different bits of brains, basically. Um, and there's also a very well-worked-out story about how the brain gets to implement the different elements of the computational story. So we're hitting all the kind of classic, you know, the, the classic picture is to explain something about human psychology. 
you need to first have a theory of how it could be done. And computational stuff is a very good way of showing that you've got a theory that would actually work. And then you've got to show that brains like ours can actually do it. And I think that we're, we're hitting both of those bases. And this theory is pretty well dominant now, I would say, in cognitive neuroscience. I don't think it's filtered um, entirely out to all the other sciences of mind yet. But, um, but it seems to me it's the way things are going. You know, there are nuances. Different people have different ideas about exactly how different bits of this work, exactly what you do with prediction error signals, which are big players here. But the general idea that brains are prediction machines using the sensory information in a different way, using the sensory information to test the predictions. So sensory information now plays this really different role. It's sort of like a little thing that you use to test the predictions that are doing most of the work. And it's super interesting. My mind's just kind of going a mile a minute here. And I want to go back to the kind of the, the sculpture idea um, where if you've, it, it's not an overnight thing, right? Maybe some sculptures yeah. are, <laughs> but yeah. I guess it, in its roughest form, it might take a day, but it might mm -hmm. take or years or a lifetime to achieve what the sculpture is that you want yeah and and i'm wondering and I'm, I'm picturing somebody chiseling away and whoops I, I hit it a little too hard and the arm fell off still looks great people enjoy the sculpture but it's missing in the arm right, right. <laughs> so i'm wondering if if we risk some of those same things in the neurological world especially as we bring technology in to perhaps mm -hmm. to help shape some of the way we take the inputs mm -hmm. from our sensors and take the data that we collect and analyze it, mm -hmm. that we, we could end up with some, uh, an experience that's missing the arm. And, and is that, can we, and is it okay if that happens? Oh, I'm going to need to circle back on that to understand it fully. So when you say an experience that's missing the arm, you, do, do, do you mean something missing from the theory or do you mean as it were that there's be something wrong with our actual human experience of the world as a result of um something i don't know wrong with the taking this theory on board either individually or as a larger group or even yeah. as a full society yeah i mean it's a tough question because i you know i'm a convert to this story so i think that this is the closest thing we've had yet to a unified account of you know, mind, perception, action, and how we humans deal with technologies and inhabit our worlds. At the same time, it's got to be false because every story that we've ever come up with is false one way or another. You know, a model is just a model is just a model and there'll be lots of things that are wrong with this one. So I suppose the question there is, given that it is just a model and there will be things wrong with it, what are the things that might be most dangerously wrong with it? Um, I think, you know, the idea that perception is controlled hallucination comes up here an awful lot. People, this is a little tagline that lots of people working in this area use, and it gets to something that is real and important, but I think it's dangerous at the same time, because the real and important thing it gets to just is that our predictions are making a difference and that our experience is constantly constructed around them. So, you know, an analogy that I'd use there is imagine if the weather forecast made a little bit of difference to the actual weather. 
you know, in the real world where the forecasts don't work like that. But imagine a world where things are just causally a little bit odd, weather forecasts make a difference, and there's a kind of little button that you can tweak up or down so that sometimes it makes more difference than it does at others. But it's always a combination of um, whatever, as it were, normally controls the weather and these weather forecasty things. That's, that's the extent to which experience is a controlled hallucination. Um, predictions are playing a role. But how much role that is and how strongly it affects experience is controlled by the brain's own estimations of how reliable different bits of the processing are. And so that's the thing called in these things, it's called precision weighting of, uh, of the prediction against the sensory information. Doesn't really matter how exactly how that works, but think of it as a volume dial. It's turning up the volume on predictions. And when we really hallucinate, the volume is turned right up to the top on the predictions. Those are the cases where I'm expecting to see a pink elephant strongly enough, and that's what I see. You know, normally, so the, if I yeah, tell you that this yeah. this amp goes to eleven, even oh, if it's, um, it's it goes to eleven, spinal tap, uh, exactly, spinal, um, yeah, well, well, yeah. You you, you I, was, I was there making this connection because yeah. you say, what if the weather you could change it, you know, to a certain yeah. extent? And I'm thinking, like, what you do because if the person that read the forecast of the weather say it's yeah. gonna be bad but not as bad so yeah. it's kind of like you know tony and then you're like yeah it's not that bad because they told me it wasn't gonna be that bad so i think the trick here is really yeah. to yeah. as you're going here i, I like some example and yeah. say like we're not talking about a completely subjective yeah. reality that just because yeah. i say that it is. And a lot of people use that in these days to say, yep, that's the way I see it. That's the exactly. way it is. Well, hold on. Yeah. So in what percentage this influences us? And I'd love to hear also in which area you think yeah. maybe we do it more, we do it less. Yeah. You know, some examples. Yeah. I mean, uh, so lots to say about all of those things. I mean, sometimes the volume is turned right up and, and we clearly see that there's a there's a case that I talk about in the book of a construction worker in the States that fell off some scaffolding and a nail went right through their boot. They were in extreme agony. They were given fentanyl. They went to the hospital. They kind of slowly took the nail out. Actually, it had passed right between the toes of their foot. So, you know, there was no damage to the bodily system at all. But they were in genuine and excruciating pain because they had this visual information that was indicating a, a very nasty thing had happened. They had no reason to doubt that information. So the volume on their prediction, if you like, got turned up very high. Um, and the way that ordinary pain is constructed is very much the same. So the idea would be that even in cases where there's a real physical cause, um, a standard physical cause, then at the same time, there's the operation of all these predictions. And that's what we see, I think, in long-term back pain and chronic pain and many, many cases of our own daily experience, um, cancer-related fatigue, people's built-up expectations about when they're going to feel better, for example. I'm going to feel better if I'm in this room than if I'm in this room. And very often it's the predictions that are then doing the work. But I think the important thing to take away, what I'm trying to get at here, is that We've now got this sort of continuum between the extreme cases and the absolutely normal. 
way that everything gets constructed. And for me, one of the kind of beneficial upshots of looking at the world through these kind of predictive processing glasses that I wear these days is that things that might have looked like extreme pathologies and weirdnesses and odd responses like the construction workers' um, experience of agonizing pain are actually just the way we all construct our experience all the time. Slightly extreme because that volume knob got turned up high, but nothing, nothing different. It's uh, everything is this mixture. Um, so I think that taking away the idea that there's no such thing as a raw or correct sensory experience, that's where we get back to that tagline of, of hallucination, of, sorry, controlled hallucination. But the control matters because we're in touch with the world. Sensory information's coming in. You can turn the, the, the volume up high on the sensory information if you're, I don't know, if you're in a situation where you really, you're trying to feel something in the dark and you turn the volume up on touch. Um, so we can do all of that. You'll never take predictions out of the equation. But at the same time, we're not normally just floating free unless you, you know, put me in a sensory deprivation tank for a while and predictions will have to start doing most of the work. And we all know, well, maybe we do <laughs> kind of what that's like. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. So, Andy, um, many times on this show, when we when we look at uh, kind of the future of technology and, and the humanity and how they interact with each other, I always I always find myself going to a place of least common denominator where we, where we take some model like you're describing mm -hmm. and we, we put it to use, right? And that model is developed for widespread use, which then means we have some parameters built in. We kind of box everything in and everybody kind of feels the same then in this case. <laughs> so I'm wondering, mm -hmm. do we, do we end up in a world where our sensors are, are softened or uh, I don't know what the right word there is, but, uh, and, and the way that we feel is the same as the person next to me and next to them and next to them. What are your thoughts on this common denominator kind of thinking? I kind of feel as if this story pulls you in the other direction somehow. Um, it seems to me that what this is kind of suggesting is that there may be way more variety among our individual experiences of the world than we thought there was. That, you know, language papers over a lot of those gaps. We have to kind of, you know, share words for bread and microphone and things like that. We have to engage those objects successfully in our daily life. But there's an awful lot of room, if these stories are right, for the way you experience these things to vary according to your own personal history. Um, and in fact, one of my colleagues at University of Sussex, Anil Seth, is working on something called the perception census. And it is trying to, um, trying to probe people to unearth these subtle differences in experience that might have escaped the, the net before. Um, predictive processing seems to me to suggest that experience might be a lot more varied than we think. I guess you're right, though, that if we all started to embrace it as, a, as a, you know, the right theory of how we work, that would be a force to bring us all together a bit, but I'm not sure that would be a bad thing. I love yeah. where you're taking that. So Sorry, Mark. I just want no, no, to go, go. Quick, quickly comment because I think you, you've shaken me a bit here, and I love it because I always had this view that the technology is going to kind of rally us and, and wrangle us. 
So I love that we have an opportunity to take things to whole new levels here. Yeah, I think cool. that's actually the fascinating part. Is that the, yeah. what I'm thinking is you you have a, a society that in order to work, we, we do need to agree on many things, a social contract, right? Not only on the law and the extension of what freedom means, but also, you know, if we decided we call, you know, this a cop, it's, it's a cop. You know, there is an equivalent in every language. And, and many people, I feel like they need that. They need to see the world is in black or white, is heaven or hell, is good or bad. Yeah. And so well, that, forth. That's a mug, by the way, not a cup. It's a cup. Yeah, well, you know, if you wear <laughs> Italian, <laughs> you know, I see it as it is. Now, that that was my mistake yeah. on on the choose of the word, the chosen the word. That's with you, though. Yeah, I know, but okay, you so. did very, very, very good uh, job. Uh, so to get it back to where I was, this is shaking, of course, yeah. the way we perceive, and I'm connecting to science as well, like quantum theory, quantum physicist, physics, yeah. all of a sudden it's, it's, it becomes a lot harder to understand because there is a lot in between. There is stuff that we don't really yeah. understand and that throw people off. So what do you think these, <laughs> it's going to reflect in the way that people interact with each other in social relationship, in in a lot of things in our society, because it, 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 I think it's a theory that shakes yeah. a lot. Yes, I agree. I mean, the the, the quantum question is is it's kind of interesting in a in a strange way here because we believe that the quantum world probably is the way things are deep down. It's like you know that's that's our best shot at how things are actually working at a sort of material physical level. Predictive processing is certainly not a story about how at least not on the face of it, a story about how we construct that sort of grip on reality. It's very much a story about how we construct a daily grip on reality in perception action cycles. So it really brings perception and action together. And we populate the world, our human world, with the kind of, um, the kind of objects that are good as levers or fulcrums for perception and action. So, you know, like your whatever it was, mug, glass, whatever it was, that thing, Stop. the black, that black <laughs> liquid receptacle that you had in your hand. Um, so, you know, we populate the world with things like this and they, they, they help us in our, in our daily endeavors. And underneath all of that is some other kind of world that we've got at through populating the world with these things and then doing some serious science. And I think, I don't think anybody, nobody in predictive processing at least, and I don't think anyone, has an absolutely good picture of how we've managed to do this. Because to understand that, we'd need to understand what language is doing to, to brains that are basically in the business of making perception action cycles possible for embodied creatures. Um, I think it's only because we've got all these symbols floating around and language that we can push down and get these really weird views of what reality might be. Um, so I think there's a big opening there for a future work in predictive processing to try to ask the question, what, how does language affect brains that are in this business in ways that will enable them to push deeper and see further and come up with really, really weird ideas about how things might really be? Uh, but yeah. So I'm, I'm hearing this and I'm, I'm picturing 
us as a human race evolving, right? And you're talking about actions and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, so I, I can predict something's going to happen or something will be a certain way and I'm going to experience that. I want to respond to that. And today yeah. my body is how my body is, right? And I'm able to move my arms a certain distance and lift certain weights. Um, I can walk, I can jump, I can't fly, right? But if I'm hallucinating, I might think I can. <laughs> or if I'm scared enough because of an experience that I'm about to have, I might react a certain way. Do you think, and I don't know if, if you've seen any research that says that our bodies will begin to kind of changing the weather kind of thing. Do you think our bodies will begin to adjust um, based on these changes mm -hmm. that we're potentially going to put into our minds? Well, so certainly in inward looking bodily information already plays a huge role in these stories. Um, so what you what the brain is kind of trying to do is take everything that it knows to have a good guess about what's out there in the world and what to do about it. And that really includes internal bodily information. So there's interesting work on, for example, um, the perception of your own heartbeat. If you if you're led to believe that your heart is beating quicker than it is by a bit of false cardiac feedback, um, you could like have a thing like a watch that just gives you a pulse that's actually quicker than your heartbeat. Under those conditions, you're more likely to judge that a neutral face is angry. Um, so the way you see the external world is kind of inflected all the time by the inward looking bodily information. Um, as to, you know, whether our experience of the body is going to change because we start to adopt a, a predictive processing framework for thinking about what's going on i kind of think it might a bit i mean it's a bit like biofeedback techniques and things you know these these change our experience of the body and if you change that you change your experience of the world so i think these models are a an interesting sort of meeting point between bodily information and how we judge the world to be and um maybe we'll find ways to exploit that meeting point in ways that, that help us. I do have a, an ex-colleague, Sarah Garfinkel, working on improving interoception, these, your sensitivity to these inward-looking signals as a way of helping people with autism become less anxious in certain situations. And that, that does seem to help. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely think a, a ton of different application. Like You have an overview of theory, but you know, when I think about Anything you do really in life, it, it could improve your performance, it could make yeah. you feel better and, and all of that. So let, let's talk about the book, because I know you wrote a lot of books, uh, you know, you're a professor and, and many of your books actually been, uh, were more of an academic kind of reading. And this, this one, you actually wrote it for everyone interested in the topic. So um, yeah. how, how do you think you achieved that? I, you know, you kind of bring the i go back to the volume but you know you yeah. bring the volume down yeah. a little bit so it's easy on everybody's ears and what do you expect maybe the people that are interested in the book they they will they will get out of it yeah i mean that there was no real technique involved here apart from having good editors at penguin random house who basically told me for three and a half drafts that it wasn't yet intelligible <laughs> Um, and so I just rewrote it repeatedly. Um, 
in the hope of, um, of, of reducing the, the gap between their expectations and uh, anything that I could get down on paper. And I actually think, you know, I was really frustrated halfway through that project. I thought, you know, really, you, I, I thought I was writing one book and I've had to write three. That was kind of roughly how I felt about it. Um, but now that I've seen the actual upshot of that, I think it was really worth it because when I read it, I think, oh, you know, the, the core ideas, even though they're underneath this, there's a, there's a huge kind of machine of um, computational simulations and neuroscience and formalisms and kind of Bayesian stuff and all sorts of, all sorts of moving parts under the, under the surface. But I think that there's a really good sort of picture of those coming through the book as a result of, you know, my editor's uh, good offices, basically. But um, what do I hope might come of that? Um, I think that this is an important part of, of our species self-understanding. It's, you know, if we can understand and appreciate that experience is not, never a kind of unfiltered way of getting at the truth about anything. Instead, it's intrinsically filtered by expectations and by bodily information. Um, this makes a huge difference, I think. It might make us, um, I don't know, more sensitive, less likely to jump to conclusions. Um, let's hope so anyway. At the very least, it's a really interesting fact about us. And I think we can, we can, we can learn stuff also about our own performances here. Because you mentioned that word, but, you know, action is brought about using prediction in these stories. And so... I think that has implications for stuff like sports science. You know, people already know that a good uh, sort of imagination of what you're about to do, assuming that you've got the right skill set, is a very good way of doing stuff. Um, predictive processing gives you a theory that, that underpins that, where it's actually, it's the brain's prediction of the trajectory of sensory information you would get if you were doing it right, that actually acts as the motor commands that bring about the action. And that, I think, gives, uh, you know, it sort of shows just how important it is not to learn what you should do, but to learn what it would feel like to be doing the right thing. Once you know that, you can make the right thing happen because that's your brain then predicts that and the body quashes the errors by moving itself in the right way to make it happen. So, so you know, basically, I think there's a lot of, a lot of cool sort of practical implications, stuff that we kind of already knew, but it comes together in this theoretical framework. Um, and uh, understanding ourselves better is always a good thing. I'm kind of, uh, yeah, I'll go with Socrates on that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, and Andy, I'm, I'm looking at one of the reviews uh, or comments uh, on your book. Uh, talking about the metaphors of how a brain works and it lists a magician, an architect, fortune teller, scientist. Yeah. I might throw in the sculptor because we referenced that earlier. I'm wondering, there's often a preconceived notion that one is, one is good at mathematics or one is good at sports or one is good at art. And that's how their brain's wired and therefore that's how they're going to be. So in the context of reading your book, is there an opportunity perhaps to, uh, and I would first go to reinforce that <laughs> or to your enlightening me earlier to blow that out of the water and say, you can be strong in mathematics. 
even if you are strong in in yeah. the arts, right? Yeah, I think the I think the takeaway message on that sort of score is that we've got a lot of wiggle room. There's, um, you know, it's true that some people will start off in their sort of um, journey of prediction, if you like, from a position in the space that makes some things easier to predict and therefore master than than others. You know, me, for example, I'm not very good at spatial stuff. So it takes me a long time to learn to tie a knot. This is sort of vague dyspraxia about spatial orientation stuff. But at the same time, if I practice it enough, I can I can learn to do it. I, you know, passed competent crew for the yachting exam. Yeah, it took a while. Um, and I think that that's just how we humans are, that basically we've got an awful lot of plasticity in there. There's a lot of space for the brain to rewire itself in different ways. And the main thing is just to um, to keep trying to do the things that you need to do. So I think that we really shouldn't feel ourselves overburdened by this idea that different different people are good at different kinds of things. There's truth there, of course. At the same time, you know, that's because we, we choose to persist typically in the things that we're rather good at because, you know, that's um, that seems like a very natural thing to do. So you become better at those. And as you become better at those, you're probably going to get a bit worse or at least not improve <laughs> in other domains. So, you know, I think that's just that's just how we manage as a sort of um, labor sharing society. Um, but, yeah, I, I think the general picture here is very much a neural constructivist plasticity uh, kind of celebrating position. I, I personally think it's it's very empowering. And, and again, I'm looking forward to read the book, but to having this flexibility instead of a rigid way that is, again, I go back to you know society structure, that this is how it is, this is how you were born, stick with it, you know, move on, almost like a cast in a certain way. But instead of being able to rediscover yourself, reinvent yourself, and I think that's what, our modern society, if we don't try to block it and, and go back in the Middle Age, that's that's what it should be, more open. And, and, and things that you said that really struck a chord with me is the fact that these are kind of things that we kind of know in the back of our head. You know, you think sociology, psychology, uh, meditation, a lot of things, yeah. they come into, into place here, but to have this overview that put it all together in a in a more structured theory. I think it's uh, it's fundamental. I, I, I really love that. It's almost something to think of a self fulfilling prophecy, right? If you believe it hard enough, maybe it's going to happen. Well, that's how motor control works on these stories, <laughs> and so does kind of longer term sort of life project control. Because the idea in both cases is that you kind of you have to predict the trajectory that will get you where you want to be. And if you predict it in enough detail and in the right, you know, in a way that is the, the, the phrase I use in the book is realistic yet optimistic. Cause if you're too unrealistic, you will fail too soon and you'll get discouraged and that's no good, but you've got to also be just optimistic enough to be dragging yourself to a good place as it were. And, um, you know, you can see in the someone like an expert car driver, they just sort of, they kind of see where the car needs to go. They know what it would feel like to be pushing and prodding all the bits in order to get it there. They don't have to think about that. Their brain knows what that's going to feel like. And so they just see where it's going to go. That's the top level goal. 
they're expert enough to cash it out with all the right sort of stuff that quashes all these little prediction errors all the way down to the um, sensory peripheries and you end up you know performing the the stunt and driving through the tiny gap in the traffic um, and that's 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 what life is like basically <laughs> I think we need to become um, expert predictors realistic yet optimistic expert predictors of the the way that we want things to pan out. Um, so that's one of that's one of the places where again the story comes quite close together to well-known stuff, stuff that we all think about, um, and the stuff that you mentioned on meditation as a way of helping to control that volume knob that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. Essentially, meditation looks like a practice that helps us gain a little bit of personal control over the volume knob, and that means we can turn down the volume on high-level predictions about ourselves and let the world speak to us a little bit more directly sometimes. So, yeah, there's a lot of things coming together, and I think that's pretty satisfying. I love it. I love it. Uh, do we have time for one more question, Marco? I have another question. Ask Andy. I'm good. <laughs> I've got time. I'm good. All right. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm enjoying it. I don't know how much insight you have on this particular part, but uh, – Certainly there, there are researchers who do research for the sake of research because they'd love it. And then there are others who do it and or buy up the research to commercialize it and make a buck. So I'm wondering if, and of course, meditation is something that I, I'll call it a product we can do to, <laughs> to experience the results that we're talking about here. But I'm just wondering, are, are there any products or services or commercial aspects of this you're familiar with how, how do we you're talking about a lot of science right underneath and yeah. surrounding this yeah. this theory and this model how does that get exposed to an everyday yeah. person to say yeah i want to turn this dial today yeah what app do i use <laughs> yeah yeah good good question um well there are a few places, a few places to go there. One of them, as you say, or as you intimated, there is meditation. It's sort of uh, there's a thing that helps, and now you can think this is taking control of the precision weighting apparatus that determines everything in these stories. So you, you can now see why that would be a really good thing to do. It doesn't work for everyone. I'm an absolutely rubbish meditator. I know quite why. You know, I kept trying. It just doesn't work for me. But you know, at least you can see why when it works, it works now. Um, there's also a thing called pain reprocessing theory that I'm very interested in. It looks to me like a it's a it's a well worked out thing. They sell their products. You know, you can uh, you know you can you can you can go and learn about pain reprocessing theory. But it does seem to really work for some people, quite a lot of people. And the idea there is, for instance, um, you know, pain often seems like a signal to tell you not to do it. So if your body's saying, "Don't do this." But when you've got chronic pain, like chronic back pain, it's a signal itself that has gone wrong very often. It's your body is saying, don't do this, don't do this, when in fact it's not going to do you harm to do this. So if you can begin to learn and appreciate that using various techniques, then you can actually start to do a bit more without experiencing more damage. That helps you predict that you'll be able to do a bit more without experiencing more damage, and you replace a sort of bad self-perpetuating cycle with a good one and i think so that's something know, like there's... a tens machine andy sorry uh, yeah well they're not I mean, different 
I think the right answer there is I don't know enough about those know. machines <laughs> to answer that question, although I have but, seen Because I know they mess with the nerves. And... Yeah. I mean, it, generally, that could play into this sort of thing because um, kind of messing around with things a bit is a way of stopping high-level predictions doing what they normally do. This is what psychedelic drugs seem to be doing. Psychedelic drugs seem to be sort of messing around a bit with high-level predictions so that lower-level stuff can kind of be appreciated again or that new ways of being can become a bit more apparent to you. So there's quite a bit in the book about how to think about psychedelic drugs, um, controlled uses, obviously, of psychedelic drugs as a... As a as a means of um, managing certain aspects of the predictive brain. So I think there are lots of places, um, pain reprocessing theory, psychedelic stuff, meditation, um, self-affirmation of different kinds, where certainly the, the sorts of morals of the, of the story are, um, are uh, I don't know, imported to everyone and therefore commercially usable. <laughs> And I think I think the key, if you understand that there is this possibility, and you, it's not it's not a panacea. It's not what's going to resolve every problem. Like you said, I mean, you you want to be a good driver, you still need the skill. You want to be a good exactly. musician, that an athlete, you still need the skills. You can't just exactly. say, "Oh yeah, I'm just going to believe I'm a good driver," exactly. and you're crashing yeah. the wall, uh, yeah. for you know, 350 <laughs> miles an hour. But yeah. the point is. I think that if you open your mind, then you're more receptive to make this technique that you just explained work because you're not putting a wall out it there and you're, you know, giving it a chance. I think that's that's the key. Exactly. You have a sense of why it works and therefore what you need to do to make it work. If you exactly. like. and that means putting in the hard work, as you say. Yep. Well, it was a great yeah. conversation, and I, I'm very tempted, and, and I will email you about that, an idea on how to talk about a book that you wrote before and, sure. and, and, and talk about technology and, uh, as an extension of humanity. But we already, I think our audience is already overwhelmed with this, probably okay. thinking, as we hope, uh, Sean and I always say, if listener and this conversation and turn off the, the podcast thinking more than when they started, we pretty good so um i i think this is going to be a book that is going to make people really think this conversation as well so sean are you thinking i am thinking and, uh, then not, therefore not you are hallucinating i'm thinking very clearly <laughs> at the moment. Uh, thank you for a great conversation oh, i really really, I really enjoyed this conversation absolutely you, Andy. well yep and everybody please stay tuned on audio signals on itsp magazine there'll be notes Either you're watching the video or you're listening to the podcast, please share, tell your friends, subscribe, and of course, uh, get the book, The Experience Machine, How Our Minds Predict and Shape Reality uh, by Andy Clark, right here. Take care. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society, and some even beyond that.